Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the opportunity to connect with Brad Kearns, who is a New York Times bestselling author, Guinness World Record setting professional speed golfer, number one ranked USA high jumper, and a former US national champion and triathlete. He hosts the B-Rad podcast covering healthy living, peak performance, and personal growth. Today, we dove into what defines fitness and all the cultural programming we have within our Western medicine mindset the importance of not overtraining or training when we are stressed and sick, the role of stress hormones, the importance of an ancestral health perspective as it pertains to physical activity. We spoke at great length about nutritional dogma, the common ground between many nutritional philosophies, including a reduction or elimination of processed foods, the importance of critical thinking, and so much more. I hope you will enjoy this podcast as much as I did recording it. This is the first of what I hope will be a series of conversations with Brad Kearns. Enjoy. Today, I'm delighted and excited to connect with you, Brad. It's really a pleasure and an honor. I've been a a huge fan for a long time. And if listeners know this about me or not, there's a lot of pressure when you are a fellow podcaster to interview another podcaster, because we understand the process of podcasting, wanting to make our conversation organic and unique, but welcome. Oh my gosh. I never thought about that. And I agree with you. I can tell when you're you're doing your tricks, like you're monologuing because I'm so boring. And then I have to like up my game again. Here we go. Two <laughs> podcasters hitting it hard. Okay. Well, you know, the hope and the intent is that you weed out individuals that you will not have a great and vibrant discussion with. And so in the midst of preparing for our conversation, I was listening and watching, watched your morning routine, watched some of your sprint exercises, you know, listen to your conversation with Abel James, who's been a, a guest on this podcast as well. Listen to your conversation with Melanie too. So I have a good sense of what I'm getting myself into. I know it's early on the West Coast. I'm sure you've already gotten in your morning routine, already walked your dog, did all the things. Well, I wish I could say I'm an early riser, popping out of bed and ready to to crush the day, but I'm constantly trying to optimize and experiment. And like Paul Saladino says, you know, when people disagree with him, especially he goes, look, you know, I'm just trying to take you from level seven to level nine. And then also we don't know what level we're at. So I want to level up, but I don't know if I'm at level five or level seven yet. So I'm always open to more possibilities. I generally feel pretty good. I'm 57 and I occasionally get, you know, accolades that, oh, you have so much energy. Wow. You're so healthy. But to me, you know, with that competitive athlete mindset that frames my background, you know, I'm always looking, you know, down the road to the guy who's still beating me by a little bit. And I always have these high standards that I never want to let go of, especially as we chronologically age, you know, I'm frustrated that I'm not recovering as fast as I did when I was 24 and racing on the professional triathlon circuit. And part of me likes to have that little competitive edge where I just, you know, I can't accept that graceful decline into aging that has become the norm. And it's so much the norm that we all kind of commiserate together with it and accept it. 
And boy, you know, we want to bust out of that. And that's what I try to do on my Be Rad podcast is, you know, express that competitive intensity and encourage other people to go for it, even if it's baby steps and making small changes, because we certainly don't want to get overwhelmed and we don't want to get intimidated either because someone is ahead of us and doing more things. And especially in today's, you know, social media culture, this person's crushing it in the morning, the other one's doing it in the evening. Where am I going to fit in my thing? And oh boy, it gets overwhelming. So if we can just focus on a little bit of improvement each day, that's the way to go. I love that reframe because, you know, as a clinician and now as a middle-aged woman, if I had listened to what even my own doctors had said to me in my early 40s, I would have just bought into this concept of, oh, you know, you're just going to gain weight and you're going to slow down and your sleep's going to be terrible and you're just going to have to white knuckle it through this middle (laughs) age point of your life. I think it's so important for all of us to be thinking conscientiously day to day, week to week. How can we improve things? My kids who are teenagers now fully understand and appreciate that my husband and I really have become examples of what they can achieve mm. if they get you know the right mindset and I'm laughing inside because I'm married to a guy that played senior level across up until the pandemic now does jujitsu so that competitive drive that you find in very athletic people is something that I have to kind of temper myself when he gets frustrated with the recovery piece or you know he just had a little kerfuffle in the house and broke two toes and that's kind of maligned him And he's been very frustrated because, you know, the teenagers are impervious to everything. And so finding that reframe and reminding him, like, maybe it's time to get back in the pool. Maybe it's time to do some recovery workouts instead of thinking, oh my gosh, this kind of all or nothing doom and gloom, the sky is falling, being chicken little, et cetera. Yeah, good point. It's part of the game. If you're going for it, if you never get injured or any setbacks, then you haven't pushed yourself hard enough for sure. The one thing I'm experiencing, especially at this age, 57, is you are compelled to reframe your goals and make them age appropriate, lifestyle appropriate. And also I'm not judging, but I would recommend, you know, things that promote longevity and overall health and vitality. And in contrast, when I was a young person and racing on the professional triathlon circuit, it's a very extreme sport. The training is quite grueling, a lot of endurance. It's chronic exercise by in in so many uh, definitions. And so it was directly compromising my general overall health for that decade when I was going forward and trying to make incremental improvements in my swimming and biking and running times. And of course, that's a worthwhile trade-off that any elite athlete will acknowledge. But then when you get spit out and you're career is over. Then I had to look on the horizon and go, what now? I mean, I don't want to continue to bash my body. And people ask, do you still do triathlons just for fun? I'm like, no, of course not. Do you like to go back to high school for one year just for fun? No, it's been there and done that. (laughs) So now I'm trying to orchestrate fitness goals in particular that are aligned with the longevity markers, like preserving functional lean muscle mass throughout life, as many experts believe is the number one longevity uh, promoter and identifies so many other things. If you're muscular and lean, that it suggests that you have you know good metabolic health. You're not carrying a lot of excess body fat by virtue of building that muscle and doing whatever that person's doing to stay fit. And so I also like to transition from this extreme endurance machine that I was in my youth. And now my competitive passions are high jumping and sprinting and doing things that are brief and explosive. 
And it's completely disparate to what I did before being out there pedaling my bike for hours and hours and running the trails for hours and hours. But I contend that it's vastly healthier. It's better for my hormonal health in so many ways. And it's also a new challenge, something fresh and exciting. I'm not genetically adapted to be a high jumper. Otherwise, my head would be out of the screen if you're watching on the video, but I'm doing the best I can. And since there's so much attrition in the older age groups, I actually rank pretty well. So that's fun for me to say, hey, I'm a ranked person, even though this is not my game. I'm an endurance athlete coming into this, but it's constantly adjusting and reframing. And you know, people say age is just a number. Hey, happy birthday. Age is just a number. I heard someone counter that aggressively a few years ago and it, it stuck with me. I forget who it was, but they said, you know, it's not just a number. And if you think it's just a number, you better wake your ass up and start to, you know, make some acknowledgements that you've got to do some things differently to take care of yourself better and wake up to the fact that you're aging. I think you bring up so many good points. And obviously we are going to touch on all of this. You know, you mentioned that you have this incredible competitive athlete, elite level athlete background. And I'm I'm hopeful that you can identify for listeners if they're not familiar with your very vast. I mean, I, I started writing down as I was doing podcast prep, there are many, many hats that you've worn throughout your sports career. And, you know, this elite level endurance sports, now explosive sports, I'd love for you to tie in your background and emerging trends that you're starting to see. Cause I see them both as a clinician, but I also, and I saw the trends, even when I was working in Washington, DC, the weekend warriors, the people that maybe they're sedentary during the week. And on the weekend, they want to start training for an iron man. They, you know, they come in with, you know, significant injuries because their, their bodies are not adapted to be sitting, you know, five days out of the week and then putting their, their body under extreme stress. So kind of touching on some of those key areas, because I think this is an area that we have not really explored on the podcast, but one that I think is, is certainly very relevant and also very pertinent, you know, given this global last two years where we've had a pandemic and maybe people have picked up some healthier habits and others have not, but for those that are, are looking to, you know, achieve some level of fitness at different stages in their lives, how can they go about that safely? Well, that's a great setup. You're getting me riled up now. Little did you realize, but when I look at the fitness industry as a whole, I have some great disappointments because there's so much marketing hype and cultural programming that drive us to things that are unhealthy and overly stressful. And so we form this mentality, especially the recreational enthusiast who's very well-meaning and wants to get up one day and do something about their life and uh, get in shape. And we get ushered into these marketing-driven mainstream programming that is by definition and by structure unhealthy and too stressful. And so what I'm talking about is everything from, hey, it's pandemic, I'm going to get one of those bikes and put it in my house and, and turn on the machine and there's the peppy instructor and they're going to guide me through a very exhaustive 45 or 60 minute workout, especially based on um, a recreational fitness level, but even for the serious recreational competitor who's out there with a race number on, on the weekend and trying to go for, to get on the podium, as they say, there's a, by and large, a pattern of overtraining and inappropriate training protocols to where the person is chronically overproducing these stress hormones. You talk about that on your show with it relating to too much fasting or dieting while you're already a fit person and so forth. And so we get into this pattern that we, this is our 
perception of fitness and a fitness lifestyle is setting the alarm, getting over to the gym, getting on that bike at 6 a.m., the music's cranking up, and you make your way through the workout. The instructor's urging you to do one more sprint, and then they tricked you, and they said, okay, one more after that. Ha ha, isn't that funny? And guess what? Afterward, you feel great because you were bathed in these adrenaline-like cocktail of hormones, and you have a sense of euphoria. The endorphins give you that pain-killing effect, and so you're walking around buzzed on this wonderful feeling that exercise gives you, and so you want more and more of that, and you go back and do it the next day and the next day, and then what happens is the very familiar fight-or-flight mechanisms become exhausted because the stress by nature is chronic, and when we look at the elite athletes, we often misinterpret and misappropriate what they're doing. They're setting an example of what the best humans can do, but we don't realize that they are almost always working well within their capacity at every single workout, every week, every month, year in, year out, and they're steadily improving. Uh, if they're doing a good job, they're avoiding injury, but those injuries are going to be common when you're going for it at the highest level. But the elite athletes take better care of their body and they don't push themselves as hard as the average person sitting on a bike in an everyday town a fitness center who's just trying to get in shape. And so the big awakening that the general public might want to embrace here is that fitness does not have to be a struggle and suffer ordeal. It's about moving your body. And in fact, many experts contend now that just increasing all forms of general everyday movement is vastly more important than adhering to a regimented, diligent fitness program of heading to the gym or doing the workouts at home or getting out on the road and putting in this many miles per week. And the reason is, is because we have so many inactivity and stillness forces in everyday life that a devoted fitness regimen cannot make up for doing that 6 a.m. workout, jumping on the subway, sitting, going up the elevator, sitting in your office and coming home and sitting on the couch. So you'd be better off to just walk that dog twice a day for 15 minutes, drop for what I call micro workouts, which is a wonderful fitness trend. I think it's the greatest thing that's happened in fitness in decades is this concept that a workout doesn't have to be this grand formal event where you go drive over to the fitness center, look for a parking space because <laughs> there's no, you're driving around looking for a space, going in, beeping your tag, getting a towel and having this big ordeal that sometimes you run out of time for. It can be as simple as getting up from your cubicle and drop for a set of 20 deep squats, which is pretty difficult. Even if you're in good shape, when you get to 17, 18, 19, you're breathing hard. You feel that burn in your muscles. And then you go back to work in your busy, hectic day in front of the screen. And so if we can sprinkle in these opportunities to be a more active human, that will give you a better payoff with far less risk than plopping down several thousand dollars for a fancy bike where the person's going to turn on and push you too hard. And that would be uh, the starting point. I can uh, pick apart more of the things that we're doing as a culture that are, you know, disturbing. One of them you mentioned, and it just, you know, right out of the mouth, the first thing you said, someone wants to get in shape, they say, oh, I'll do a triathlon or I'll do a marathon or something like that. And why does this have to represent the ultimate fitness achievement? Why can't a 5K, which is 3.1 miles, 
and they're all over sprinkled all over and everyone's saying, well, I'm going to do a few 5Ks and then I'm going to do my half marathon, my great accomplishment. And I'm going to go get a tattoo on my body that says 13.1 or a sticker on my car. And it's like, that's fine that you can shuffle along and finish 13 miles. It is a great fitness accomplishment. It represents so many things that you train so hard and you practice. But what about running a quality pace for just three miles, showing that you can be more of a powerful, explosive, all around athlete who can move with speed rather than just shuffle through, you know, block after block in the name of saying, this is the ultimate fitness achievement. So I'm going to challenge kind of that obsession with endurance, and then certainly challenge the general level of intensity that most people exercise at from all levels, novice, even up to hardcore. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armra colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armra's colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to try 
armra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. I think it's really important because as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking of examples, patients, friends, family members that go to extremes, or they think they're still 20 and they can out-exercise their poor quality eating habits, which I know is a whole separate rabbit hole. But I'm thinking specifically about individuals that feel like they have to be in a class. They want the accountability, which I totally understand. But one thing the pandemic did for my husband and I was that, you know, there were moments and I was in a very conservative part of the country and, you know, we weren't allowed to do a whole lot, but we did walk these two dogs that we have who were comical in and of themselves. And the dogs were getting four and five miles a day of walking. We were getting lots of, you know, sunlight exposure. And it's now become this trend for us to do these, you know, with the exception of when it's hot and humid, like it is right now, just that connection with nature and reminding people we don't have to go to these extremes. Like there are so many people I interact with. We're in a new city and they'll talk about, you know, the lack of access to classes or the lack of access to a better gym. And I've actually said, you know, I have teenage boys. So for me, right before the pandemic, we bought TRX bands, we bought kettlebells, just, I mean, it was completely serendipitous, but the point of why I'm sharing this is that we overcomplicate fitness. And I think there's a lot of vanity metrics, especially with social media. There's good and bad about social media. There's a lot of great information about social media, but I I think for many reasons, are people truly living the authentic lives they want to be in? Or is it because they want the vanity metric, the validation from perhaps strangers or people that follow them on social media to say, oh, good for you. You did the marathon and good for you. You did, you know, the Ironman good for you. You did, you know, these brutal burpees laden classes, which if I never do another burpee for the rest of my life, I'll be a happy woman. Yeah. Good point. And it's not inherently bad. And so you point that out with social media and same with all the exercise uh, programming and opportunities that we have, but it's up to the individual to take personal responsibility for your journey and make sure that these workouts are feeding your general level of energy, vitality, health, well-being. And that means that, you know, six hours after your session, we don't want to see people crashing and burning and reaching for the Ben and Jerry's tub uh, later that evening. And I think that's a lot of what happens is we get this rebound effect. It's called the compensation theory of exercise, where if you overexert yourself, if you expel too much energy for exercise output, you're going to turn down these other very important metabolic hormonal dials. One of them, like you've talked about on your show, this reproductive fitness is the best marker for whether whatever you're doing is in line with stress-rest balance. And the most extreme example we have with elite female athletes that get down to low body fat, they experience loss of menstruation, uh, turning down, turning off the reproductive dial by virtue of overexerting themselves. There's a quote from, I think it was Dr. Herman Ponser, author of Burn. He says, reproduction, repair, growth, and locomotion are a zero-sum game. So if you overuse one of those, you're going to borrow from the others. Locomotion encompassing all physical exercise energy expenditure. And we can all relate to getting an injury from overuse or a sore throat comes up when you first jump into your 12-pack of personal training sessions twice a week out of nowhere. And that's the body telling you that, hey, my immune function, my hormonal function is uh, compromised because you're pushing yourself too hard. And we all have that great intuitive sense to know 
when we're off base and out of balance, but we kind of ignore it. I think again, because of that cultural programming, someone's urging you to come back and do more and do another sprint and do another sprint. So to orchestrate it properly, the first thing we want to do is just move more at a comfortable, gentle pace. Mark Sisson and I, Mark started this 15 years ago. He said, here's the primal blueprint. Here are the laws that inspired by our ancestral past of what the human needs to do to be fit. And one of the laws was move frequently at a slow pace. The other one was lift heavy things. And the third one was sprint once in a while. It's pretty simple. So what you're doing is you're moving around a lot where you're not taxed. You're not dipping into that glucose burning heart rate zones. Instead, you're burning primarily fat. And the characterization there is that it's comfortable. And so that's walking for most people. If you're going to jog, that means you're getting really, really fit. And walking is so easy that you can jog and still remain at those aerobic heart rates. But I contend that most joggers, just by virtue of you know picking up the pace to a slow jog, the heart rate is starting to exceed that maximum aerobic limit and drift into the more anaerobic heart rate zones where you switch over from optimal fat burning into more and more glucose burning. Now, if you're training for the Olympics, those athletes are going to be working in different zones and knowing what they're doing with anaerobic threshold training. But for most of us who want to be healthy, be metabolically healthy, perhaps contribute toward fat reduction goals, you want to emphasize that fat burning pace when you were going for a sustained period with your cardio. And they have the machines at the fitness center have heart rate now. You can get heart rate so easily on the smart watches. So it's really easy to keep track of that heart rate. And the widely respected formula to use is 180 minus your age in beats per minute. And that represents the limit for a pure aerobic activity. So if one is 50 years old, 180 minus 50 is 130. And so you're going to set a beeper perhaps and watch that number. And when you're doing stair climbing and watching CNN or, or pedaling the bicycle or out there jogging or jog walking, you want to make sure you do not exceed 130 beats per minute, because that represents the point where you're burning the most fat a minimal amount of glucose. And if you go up to 135 or 140 or 142, it still feels comfortable because we're talking about uh, many, many beats below your, your maximum sprint heart rate. It still feels comfortable, but metabolically, the effect of the workout is different and it's most likely not going to align with your overall healthy lifestyle goals. And so that's the move frequently component that we are mostly strongly deficient in, especially the athletic world where those fitness freaks that are on the bike at 6 a.m. are going to their personal trainer twice a week to throw around weights. They have tendency to pull out their hall pass for sitting around laziness, cruising the parking lot for a closer spot, all those kind of behaviors where, hey, I already knocked off, boom, my fitness objective for the day. Now I can relax into the couch and forget about it until the alarm rings again the next day. So so we want to like change that mentality to be more peppy, more active, you know, dash up the stairs in your home or at your office put workplace if you have to ascend stairs during the day and things like that that sprinkle in. Of course, they're not going to tax you. Even if you're unfit, anyone can hustle up the stairs more so than their general walking pace and drop for a set of 20 squats. And now we start counting these little uh, behaviors that can turn into habit. Oh, yeah, we're walking the dog twice a day. All told, it's not a huge time commitment but it will pay off better so than getting into too extreme of an exercise routine. Well, one of the things that I always value about your work and Mark's is that it's reasonable, it's down to earth, it's accessible. And I think anyone that's listening 
whether it's walking more, you know, just being conscientious when you're wearing your Apple watch or your whoop band, whatever you utilize, just being attuned to the fact, have you moved enough that day? Like I typically will say it's a good day if I've done 10,000 steps before I start my work day. And there are many days that that start that way. And I do it. I'm very deliberate, but it's also like, I'll stop podcasting. When I finish with you, I've got laundry upstairs and I'm constantly moving around, not at a frenetic pace, but that kind of being conscientious about being less sedentary. And then also the zone tune training, which is kind of what you're talking about. Rob Wolf was on and was talking about this. And now I feel much more comfortable sharing with people that being aware of that physical activity, those levels in which you want to coexist. I think we've been conditioned to believe for far too long that we have to get breathless, that we need to be breathless all the time when we're exercising. And what you are alluding to, what I'm talking about is, you know, you can get sweaty. Yes. You can generally have a conversation. Yes. You'll have opportunities, whether or not it's doing hit. And I know this is something in particular I want to talk about with you because a lot of people, a lot of the fit pros have gotten the, the concept of high intensity interval training and actually gotten it wrong too long a duration, too high intensity, et cetera. But for the average person understanding that just making sure you're more active throughout their day has a lot of profound net benefits, as opposed to doing that CrossFit class at 5 a.m. and then sitting on your rear end for the rest of the day. <laughs> Very well said. And yeah, then we have this other critical objective if we want to age gracefully and uh, look good and, and hit these other fitness goals, which is we want to put ourselves under extreme challenge on a regular basis. So that's other uh, resistance load or sprinting, doing things that are brief and explosive. And we've definitely blown that one too, with this fascination with hit high intensity interval training, where we now think that we have to do this for an hour. But the trick with high intensity exercise, brief explosive movements that help uh, with those hormone, adaptive hormones flooding the bloodstream, sending the strong genetic signals to build or maintain lean muscle mass, reduce body fat, all those great benefits that happen when you push yourself hard. It's a very high risk workout with a high return, but the high risk is from overdoing it. So pushing yourself hard too frequently or conducting a workout that is too long in duration such that it is no longer explosive and powerful. It's just exhaustive. So the key factor of doing high intensity training properly is that you're putting in a very quality effort. So if we take a simple example of going to the bench press, right? And maybe not of big interest to a lot of people. I don't do it. Some people say it's a ridiculous exercise, doesn't have functional benefit, but everyone's familiar with the person lying on the bench with a, a weight over their chest and they do however many reps. At a certain point, you're going to get tired. So if you do six, you're done and you rack the weight. Now, if you were to go do three or four or five sets of that, what's going to happen is you're going to start to have a breakdown in technique. You're going to start putting joints and muscles in compromising position because you're becoming exhausted. You're out of energy and you're trying to lift this heavy weight too many times. And so that sweet spot of getting strong might be just a single set in this simplified example. And with HIT, where we're familiar with doing this on the stationary bike or doing it out on the running track with our running club or what have you, uh, generally they're asking the participant to push their body hard for too long a duration and then do too many uh, repetitions of it with insufficient rest in between. So if we're going out to the running track and doing eight times 400, that's one lap 
with some rest in between. And number one and number two and number three are going to feel pretty good. And then when you start to get to number six and number seven, you're going to have a breakdown in technique. You're going to be straining too hard. You're going to be overproducing these stress hormones because the workout is now transitioned into this survival mode where your body's getting the message that, oh, you know, the coach is blowing the whistle once again. And now I have to summon uh, you know, the deep reserves of my energy. And when you walk away from a workout like that, an overly stressful workout, you're going to feel exhausted. It might not happen for however many hours because you're bathed in stress hormones, remember. And so it might be the next morning you wake up with uh, stiff calf muscles and a headache and the whole rest of the day, you don't feel sharp. And these are all clear signs that the workout was too stressful. So when it comes to pushing yourself hard, there's a beautiful sweet spot between 10 and 20 seconds that represents kind of the ideal duration for a sprint effort whether it's on a bike, whether it's running, if you can do it with uh, high impact on flat ground that has a lot of hormonal and bone density and genetic signaling benefits for fat loss. But a lot of people need to build up to that by sprinting on a bike or sprinting on another form of cardio equipment. But you can sprint for 10 seconds or 15 seconds or 20 seconds, and that's plenty. And then you stop and you take an extensive rest period. Dr. Craig Marker down in Atlanta, he wrote a beautiful article called Hit Versus Hurt, H-I-R-T, and that's his spin on it to do a more appropriate high-intensity workout, but he calls them luxurious rest intervals. So you do a sprint for 20 seconds, and then you rest for six times as long as the duration of your sprint. So if you're doing a 10-second sprint, you rest for a minute and do another 10-second. If you're doing 20-second, you rest for two minutes. And it's like, look, you only went for 20 seconds, and now you get to rest for two minutes. That would be easy pedaling or slow jogging if we're talking about running. It's a very, very long rest period for such a short sprint. And then you go back and do another and then do another. And generally for most people, somewhere between four to eight repetitions of this sprint is plenty to represent a fantastic workout. So let's say at the maximum, you're doing eight sprints of 20 seconds on a stationary bike. Each sprint is has a two minute rest period. It's not overly daunting for virtually everyone. And I'm favoring running sprints. So I'll do a workout where I do six sprints of 10 seconds with a minute rest in between each one. And I'll go home and call it a day. And what I've done there is a wonderful fitness stimulation to develop a truly powerful and explosive athlete. Because guess what? When I get that much rest and the sprints are that short, I can really go for a maximum explosive effort. I'm not degrading the workout by getting tired between the 30 second mark and the 45 second mark because someone's telling me to sprint for 45 seconds. And the literal truth when it comes to, uh, you know, the substrates used for exercise and the, the metabolic effects of trying to give maximum power output, the human is not capable of literally going all out for more than around eight seconds. That's the ATP creatine phosphate energy pathway for absolute maximum 100% explosive effort. So everything after eight seconds, you're kind of slowing down anyway. It's not literally maximum output, but we can go pretty fast as we've seen on the recent world championships track and field that I attended in Oregon. These guys are going pretty fast for 20 seconds. They are sprinting pretty hard. So when we put that upper limit up at 20 seconds, the reason that's there is because if you ask your body to deliver a maximum effort beyond 20 seconds, you start to experience this phenomenon of cellular breakdown 
in order to fuel the cells that desperately seeking maximum energy throughput through the cell, right? Uh, not to get too scientific here, but it's like when you're trying to go hard for too long, your body basically burns down the cellular structure to throw that ATP into the cell and you experience a prolonged recovery time, increased risk of injury, breakdown, burnout, illness, all the things that happen in the aftermath of an extreme effort that was simply too stressful. But I love the idea of being doing HIIT, but doing it coming from a place of efficiency. But as you stated, you know, doing six sprints with a longer recovery period where you probably are then able to give an all out effort. I would imagine a lot of people when they're doing HIIT, maybe they're going at 60 to 70%. They probably aren't going full on out. And, and as a reframed competitive athlete, I'm sure for you, you know where your body needs to be to be able to do an all out expenditure in whatever activity that you're doing. But I would imagine a lot of people when they're really thinking they're doing hit, they're really not going a hundred percent in. That's my guess. Right. And what happens is you start to traffic in this mediocrity where you are going and putting in some good work. The running example is classic because we have our community runners. You see them out there running every day and they're going for the race mode and they're pushing themselves and they're, you can see the strain when you drive by them and they're on the next block. And what's happening is you're constantly drifting into this, what the exercise physiologists call the black hole heart rate zone, where it's not easy enough to be considered a truly nurturing aerobic session. And it's not hard enough. It's not impressive enough. It's not difficult enough to be truly considered a powerful, explosive sprint training session. And so you're working on these in-between heart rate zones that are chronically stressful, but lasting for too long and done too frequently. And that's where you get into the overtraining patterns and the hormonal imbalances and all the negative aspects of a devoted commitment to fitness. Your workout program is too stressful. And so you never do experience what it's like to be truly powerful and high quality with excellent technique preserved for the duration of the session because you have those long rest periods, because you're not sprinting for that long. And you're getting, you know, you're only doing this maybe once a week when you do that proper high intensity sprint workout uh, running on flat ground. You only need to do it once in a while because the training effect is so profound. And when you become competent at pushing your body to the maximum for this short period of time, you become fitter at all lower levels of exercise intensity because your brain, your central nervous system that fires the muscles and uh, you know asks for that explosive effort, it can now start jogging and go, wow, this is easy. This is all you want me to do. I know how to sprint. So jogging becomes easier, both psychologically as well as for the sodium potassium pumps in the muscles to fire and send you down the road at whatever pace per mile that's way slower than a proper sprinting effort. So you get these fitness benefits, these profound fitness benefits. Again, many people are looking for fat reduction and supporting their body composition goals. And of course, you can find articles and all this exciting announcement that HIIT training and sprint training has a vastly superior return on investment to jogging and jogging and jogging. And that's true, but you have to do it correctly because if you're just doing the traditional HIIT workout that lasts for too long, all it's going to do is spike your appetite and turn down those other important dials, reproduction, repair, and growth. I think that's all very important. And this was not intentional. There's a triad that I've started witnessing in many ways. Intermittent fasting chose me. I didn't per se choose intermittent fasting to be known for, 
But over several years of working with patients and clients, predominantly women, this triad is starting to emerge of overtraining, over restriction, over fasting, and people are wondering why they're no longer getting results. And I've actually done some reels. My my team and I very carefully have navigated addressing this on social media. And it's very triggering for some individuals. We get a little bit of a blowback whenever I discuss this. And I always say, just because a little bit of fasting is good doesn't mean more is better. Same thing with, you know, over restriction of certain macros. And there's an intention to why I'm bringing this up. The fear of carbohydrates, the fear of fat. I have witnessed it all, the fear of protein over a lifetime. And so I would love for you to just briefly, and then I want to dive into the diet dogma, which I think is certainly very relevant. I'm seeing this emerging triad, as I call it. I don't know how else to refer to it. And I know for you, you've kind of pulled back a bit on fasting and, you know, recommending fasting and probably being more intuitive in your eating. Were you starting to see similar patterns, you know, between men and women in terms of people that, you know, it probably also associated with, you know, people that are more fitness oriented as well? Did you just have this prevailing personality of, if a little bit of something is good, then more is better. And so I wanted to address this with you because I haven't actually addressed this with anyone on the podcast, but it seems particularly relevant and timely to do so. It's relevant and timely because my head is blowing up right now and I'm rethinking a lot of the foundational principles of ancestral health that I've been writing about and working with Mark Sisson for so long. And I think I give you a lot of credit for that extreme devotion to individualism of everything, especially the distinction between female hormonal needs and you know metabolic function and the males. And I think one of your shows, maybe it was with Melanie Avalon, where you're tired of male health figures telling women how to fast and how to do this and how to do that. And so that's like fair point taken. And I think the more we learn and the more sophisticated we become with the research and the the years of experience here, um, we're compelled to be more and more individualized and to test and refine and especially remain open-minded and think critically at all times. And I think it's really easy, especially when we're living and breathing this stuff and putting out content to become wedded to our own points of view or the camp that we're in. And that's where the amazing exchange of information that we have in modern era can be uh, really destructive. So constantly challenging myself to listen to alternative points of view and process it and be willing to test my own approach and my own strategy. And yeah, I think that triad, as you describe it, you know, we're talking about a segment of the population that's already so far ahead of, you know, baseline that you can get too wrapped up in it and have too many stress factors happening, and then everything's sort of uh, destructive. Same with the exercise example, getting your butt off the couch and getting out the door, no matter what you do. I don't care if you go sprint to the next mailbox or you know collapse at the next block and get a ride home. You're still sort of you know raising your hand saying, I'm, I, I want to change my life. And then you definitely want to get more refined as you proceed further down with exercise goals. But with eating, I think I like to start with you know, this common ground. And it's become clear that the number one priority here is to just simply eliminate processed foods. And these are so prevalent, they're sneaky. Uh, most people aren't even aware when they're looking on their labels for their condiments and what have you that the refined industrial seed oils are still present. Or we go out to a fancy dinner on the anniversary and the entrees are between 35 and $47. And that beautiful steak and fish or whatever they're offering up is generally cooked in 
the refined industrial seed oils, the, the cheap, nasty garbage that the restaurant is using simply to save money. Uh, my son had a job for a while in a very fancy Los Angeles restaurant. He's cooking up $100 steaks. Don't get me started that they were paying a minimum wage. But anyway, it was a very high-end restaurant. And I said, so what are you guys using? And he's nodding his head like, you don't want to ask. And so, you know, for a $100 steak, they're dipping the grill with, you know, the cheapest and most dangerous of agents that we can consume. So I'm getting uh, on a tangent there, but... Uh, I forgot what I was going to say next. You're talking about, you know, what the uh, the dangers of kind of overdoing it, I guess. Right. And so if we can just make this commitment to clean out our pantry and our refrigerator and make choices for healthy, wholesome foods, we're going to be so far down the road and so far, you know, escaping from this disastrous path of destruction, decline and disease that we're seeing all around us that, you know, the rest of it's just fun and games and cotton candy and bubble gum. But so many people are stuck kind of in that realm of comfort foods, cultural programming, all these things that we somehow are resistant to give up or we give ourselves an excuse because um, it's someone's birthday and of course we want to have a slice of cake, but the cake was purchased from a typical supermarket and there's all kinds of chemicals and ingredients in there. They're going to uh, disrupt your metabolic function for a sustained period of time. So if there's anything we can do today, you having me as a guest, I'm going to say, look, people just cut out those processed foods and then let's talk about the rest. But if you can't seem to do that, forget about fasting or, you know, keto or anything, you know, the, the time windows, all that stuff is sort of folly. If there's stuff leaking into the picture, especially the seed oils, especially dining out, if you're doing good at home, then we got to turn our attention to um, our restaurant choices. And that's my favorite starting point now. I love the quote from Dr. Robert Lustig, author of Metabolical and many other great books, one of the world's leading anti-sugar crusaders. And he contends, and he's a pretty darn good resource. He says, if you simply eliminate processed foods and you consume exclusively wholesome, nutritious, natural foods, you cannot get fat. You cannot become obese. You cannot get metabolic disease if you're eating wholesome foods. And it's like <laughs> a lot of people have said, I told that to Mark Bell yesterday, you know, the power project guy. I and mean, he says, I can, I can eat enough steak and eggs and all that. I can get fat. <laughs> okay, fine. But if you think about it for a second, have you ever, you know, walked away from dinner and pushing your stomach and say, I ate too many steaks? Oh my gosh, I feel terrible. I had too many omelets. <laughs> I had too many cuts of salmon. It's really difficult to kind of overdo it on those high satiety, nutritious foods, the high animal proteins, the things that you talk about as the priority. And even with natural nutritious carbohydrates, like I can eat a whole pineapple. I've done it just recently, but I can't eat two or three or four, but we can certainly do that with the one scoop that we intended for the ice cream. And then we had four and then the pint's gone. I've been using MitoPure for the last two years, and I've added this to my routine for multiple reasons. Number one, it's a foundational supplement for me and my family. It keeps things simple, and I know that I cannot get enough of urolithin A in my food to derive the same benefits. And if you're not familiarized with urolithin A, it's a signaling molecule, but it's also actively involved in anti-aging, energy production. And I take Timeline because of its remote remarkable healthy aging solution that activates key critical cellular pathways in my body 
It's a total game changer for healthy aging. I alternate between using the soft gels and powder depending on whether or not I'm traveling. And we know that restoring cellular energy is a key to enduring health. And this is concluded in a recent publication in Nature Metabolism, which is a top scientific journal identifying that newly energized cells may provide many more years of healthy life to people. Yet as we age, we know that cellular energy production naturally declines and reduces our prospects of optimal health and longevity. That's the great thing about Timeline is you can restore cellular energy and support healthy aging. I've noticed the biggest improvements in my energy and sleep levels. We know that Timeline is clinically shown to give our cellular energy generators, the mitochondria, new power. And when taken daily, it replaces aging mitochondria. So it upregulates mitophagy and rebuilds new ones or mitogenesis. Timeline is the only nutrient that can do what it does. So Timeline renews your cells to a more powerful state. My listeners can get 10% off your first order at Timeline dot com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off at timeline.com slash Cynthia. I know you're going to love this product. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients. And it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. Well, you know, there are so many good points. I've done a couple talks recently talking about metabolic health as wealth. And the number one ingredient that everyone listening should be conscious and aware of are the seed oils. I did a great podcast with Dr. Kate Shanahan last year talking about the hateful eight. The most common, commonly consumed fat in the United States is soybean oil. And that is because it proliferates in the processed food industry. Ben Bickman, who is a wealth of information and this amazing insulin researcher puts out incredible content. And so I like to bring up the fact that when you have your $100 steak in the fancy restaurant, it is likely adulterated with soybean oil. It's probably in the dressings you get in restaurants. So certainly we want to be mindful and and take these things out of our diets. Now, with that being said, the whole concept of the processed food industry, it's designed to, you know, blow through these satiety centers in our brain. You know, it doesn't tell our bodies that we're full. That's why you can eat, you know, endless bags of Doritos, not that I would ever suggest anyone do that, but much, much harder to sit down and eat a big steak and a bunch of eggs. At some point, your stretch receptors in your stomach are going to tell your brain, I am full, stop eating. You don't get that same chemical messaging signaling in the body that you do with real whole food. And I would agree with you, 
eating less processed foods. And fun fact, I have my husband doing a whole 30. He's never done one before. And he has completely blown his mind that all of a sudden his world has gotten very small. We eat very healthy, but now all of a sudden, you know, he can't just eat the ice cream. He can't just, you know, he's pretty healthy, but he can't just do the things. What do you mean? I don't have a chip I can eat. What do you mean? I can't have that ketchup. I mean, all of a sudden his world has gotten smaller. And what I found over even just the last few days, even with a fairly healthy lifestyle and eating choices, he's been really humbled. (laughs) He was like, I woke up very hungry this morning. I said, good, that's a good thing. But for listeners, really focusing in on honing in on less processed food. So that's, that's absolute. I would say that one of the things I appreciated when I was prepping for your discussion today was you have this carnivore scores chart that I went through. And for the benefit of listeners, I probably lean carnivore-ish more than anything else. I like meat. I like fish. I like eggs. I don't eat a lot of carbohydrate. And if I do, it's a whole food carbohydrate. That's what works best for me and my body in this life stage. But let's talk a little bit about your evolution, because I know, you know, in your past, just like all of us, as you mentioned, we should critically think we should evolve. We should shift. We should change our perspectives. What has changed about your, your personal nutrition dogma over your last 10 or 15 years? Oh boy. So I got involved with Mark Sisson back in 08, and I was coming from a lifelong devotion to health, athletic training, performance, and all that. Uh, But he said, here's this primal thing, and it's about, you know, honoring the lifestyle of our ancestors, our genetic expectations for health. Here are the foods that uh, nourished human evolution. Ready? Take notes, please. We're going to write a book together. Meat, fish, fowl, eggs, vegetables, fruits, nuts, and seeds. And that kicked off the primal paleo movement where, look, if it didn't exist 10,000 years ago, you know, all those taglines from the old days. And I remember that first discussion with Mark. So wait, is oatmeal a grain? Mark's like, yep. What about cereal? Yep. <laughs> you know, okay okay, bread, I got that. So no rice, no pasta, no this, no that. And so I I pretty much went cold turkey into the primal living. And that was a wonderful health awakening from basically a grain-based diet, or I should say a whole grain-based diet, because I was trying to be healthy and honor, you know, the cutting edge of, especially for athletics. And, you know, we were eating a lot of carbs to fuel that level of training. And so that was, you know, now 15, 14 years ago. Right. And I think, you know, operating within that paradigm and choosing your personal preference through that very simple list, meat, fish, fowl, eggs, vegetables, fruits, nuts, and seeds, you're doing pretty well. And you've graduated so far from the widespread consumption of processed foods, especially the refined grains, sugars, and industrial seed oil. So Mark and I talked through numerous books about just ditching the big three toxic modern foods, the oils and the refined grains and sugars. And then, you know, you can strategize per personal preference. And I've fooled around with this and that and, you know, experimented just for fun. And just because I'm in this game, for example, we were chartered to write this book about the ketogenic diet called the Keto Reset Diet. That was our first book. It's still one of the best-selling books about keto. It's one of the earliest books about keto. And so we plunged full bore into uh, ketogenic macros, which meant for me, you know, restricting many of the typical carbohydrate foods that I would enjoy just from being healthy and eating fruits and vegetables and what have you. But that was sort of a, a short duration experiment to go deep into it and assess some of the results. And like you hinted at earlier, um, when you're an athlete and you're burning a lot of calories, I feel like you're stacking a lot of what are all acknowledged to be uh, stress mechanisms in the body. 
And I've recently had even bigger awakening to that because if I get out my stress scoreboard, the first thing I write on the stress scoreboard is age 57, still trying to do crazy athletic stuff at an advanced age. So that is a highly stressful project that I'm on to preserve this competitive intensity and and shoot for goals like running around the track really fast or jumping over the high jump bar. So I'm already in a high risk category because I like to train and push my body. And yeah, sometimes I make mistakes in overdoing it. I was talking about the protocols for sprinting and, you know, I'll go out to the track. I'll feel great. I'll do a proper set that'll help me prepare for competition. And then A day later, oh, there goes that left calf again or that left glute muscle. I overdid it and I didn't realize it at the time because I was having so much fun. So I'm really working on dialing back everything and working within my capabilities with even more intention because it's so easy to get carried away when you're having fun just like your husband playing lacrosse and or, or tweaking, you know, his, his toes, who knows what he was doing. But when you're pushing it is sometimes you, the pieces pick up later. So if that's the case, and I'm already stressing my body with these explosive high intensity workouts, is there any justification at all for me to fast or intermittent fast from healthy, nutritious foods? And that's the thing that I'm rethinking recently. I've been inspired by this guy, Jay Feldman, Energy Balance Podcast. So it's called the, he promotes the bioenergetic model of health where he wants the cells fully fueled and nourished at all times so that your exercise energy expenditure in your daily life is less stressful. And it's an interesting point that's really relevant to me because look, I just got my labs, uh, my triglycerides are 27 my fasting insulin is 2.3. My body composition is fine. I'm hitting, I don't have any metabolic disease risk factors. In fact, some people, when your eyebrows raise, if you're watching on video, um, some people contend, Chris Kelly, Nurse Balance Thrive, he said, 27, that's too low. Your triglycerides are too low. I want to see them higher. And I'm like, okay, well, what do you do? Oh, I guess you got to go eat more sugar, right? To raise triglycerides. So these things that we talk about with standard Western diet and standard, typical, unfit, inactive population, they we have all kinds of problems that we need to jump into immediately in triage mode in the emergency room and say, hey, stop eating so much crappy processed food and get your body moving more. That's the general recommendation for a lot of people. That's why books like yours will sell like crazy because if you start fasting or doing anything that represents a departure from unrestrained, unfettered, indulgent access to processed foods, you are going to have a massive health awakening. Even following the keto reset diet, luckily we put in a 21-day reset period. We didn't say do this forever for the rest of your life. So that was kind of uh, covering our bases there because we're now getting a lot of backlash, a lot of fallout from people that have been pushing to the extreme and turning down those dials that I, those aforementioned dials and experiencing, you know, particularly those compensatory mechanisms that kick in, you're going to feel tired, sluggish, your thyroid's going to turn down, your adrenal function, all these things that we talk about in the health space as problems, those things will happen when your body perceives that it's not getting enough energy. It's really, really smart at economizing. And so my awakening is, hey, what if I eat to the maximum amount of nutritious calories that I can put down, right? And then I'm being as energetic 
as I possibly can, or as I want to, I'm not telling people to go walk nine miles every day. Some people are criticizing 10,000 steps is too daunting of a goal for a fat inactive population in general. So how about you go for 1000 and then we start talking about Cynthia's 10,000, just show me the 1000 first, and then we'll keep talking. Just like, just show me a clean slate for the junk food and getting that processed food out of your diet. And then we'll keep talking. So that's a bit of rambling, but my personal uh, reflections are, and this is coming from great advice from Dr. Tommy Wood, one of my most respected authority figures, really sensible, reasonable guy, a leader in t- ancestral health space. And he says, hey, for fit, active people, I suggest that they consume a maximum amount of nutritious calories until you gain a pound of body fat, and then you dial it back a little bit and know that you've just hit optimal. So for me, I am no longer fooling around with a ketogenic stint, nor playing around with extended fasts or even general everyday fasts, which has been so much a pattern of my life for so many years. And what I typically do, I'd wake up, you know, I work hard in the morning. I feel great. I'm alert. I'm energized. I might be nibbling on my dark chocolate, which I can never do without. And then, you know, somewhere around midday, I'll have this fabulous nutritious meal, have another one. We just wrote a book called two meals a day talking about, Hey, pick your two meals. It could be breakfast, dinner. It could be lunch, dinner, whatever. So I'm, I've been in this pattern for a long time and now I'm going out of my way to make this concerted effort to start my day with a huge bowl of fruit and a huge protein smoothie that has frozen liver chunks in there and frozen fruit and several scoops of protein powder, you know, 20 or 30 capsules. I I like the animal organ supplements from Ancestral Supplements. I have one that I co-promote called MoFo. So there's plugs going in there. And then I have this giant protein smoothie and fruit. And that's my morning instead of fasting. And I'm just sharing this to be open and talk about my personal experience. And the next person might, you know, experience more benefit from, uh, from fasting and and tightening things up, but you have to see where you are on that spectrum and, you know, kind of determine your performance goals, mix and match with your blood results. What was your quote? Don't guess test. Yeah. Something like that. Is that what you said? Yes. That's my standard mantra when people are stuck. Like and figure so it out. That's my current state of the evolution. But I will, I should mention because you mentioned that carnivore scores chart, Dr. Paul Saladino, leader of the carnivore movement. He's a big public figure now. He likes to go extreme. He likes to be radical. He has a series of his videos where he's shouting at you, talking about this is bullshit, that is bullshit. And I love his style because he's trying to get us woken up from the giant beast of mainstream health programming that we've been brainwashed very severely to our detriment. And so that's all great. And you know, taking some of his insights that, for example, the most nutritious foods on the planet are the animal-based superstars like the pastured eggs and grass-fed beef and animal organs and the, uh, the superstars of the fish family, the smash fish, salmon, mackerel, anchovies, sardines, herring. So these are the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet uh, per evolutionary biology and other experts. This is how humans evolved and branched off from our ape cousins who still chew on leaves for 11 hours a day to uh, nourish their very tiny and you know less functioning brains. And so we have a lot of support for the idea that an animal-based diet where we focus on the most nutritious foods is going to give us the best health. I guess in contrast to the grain-based American diet where you're having toast and cereal and orange juice for breakfast, and then you're having a sandwich, and then you're having pasta for dinner, and you're filling yourself up with all these foods that are by 
undisputedly vastly less nutritious than having your steak and your eggs and your fish and all the things that you love from the animal base. So I created a chart with uh, Kate Kretzinger. She's a health coach on the East Coast. And we you know, strategize the tiered ranking system. So liver is on the top and salmon eggs and superstar foods like that. And then you can kind of drift down to you know things that are lower ranked due to their nutrient density. So if I describe my diet, most of my nutritional value comes from the animal-based foods. In fact, most of it comes from butcher box because it's so simple. You can now get this very high quality, carefully selected animal foods because that's really important. And I respect and appreciate all the disputes about concentrated animal feeding operations, feedlot animals, bad for the planet, bad for the human. So you want to choose wisely. Best example is when you go buy a dozen eggs, it's $4 for the conventional egg and it's $8 for the pastured egg. But the nutrient improvement is the greatest return on investment, not to mention your concern for the animal's welfare and all those things. So we're finding the best sourced superstar animal foods. And then when it comes to the plant foods and the carbohydrates, there, I think we have a lot of personal preference to respect, especially with the emergence of the carnivore movement, which is fascinating to me. I wasn't a sufferer and a survivor, but when I my eyes bug out when I hear these people saying that they turn their whole lives around by eliminating these natural plant toxins that are highly concentrated in some of our favorite superstar plant foods. So to think for a moment that that kale smoothie and then your salad and then your stir fry in the evening could not only be uh, unnecessary or, you know, so-so, but it could also be potentially health compromising was a huge eye-opener for me. And that's when I had, when I talk about thinking critically and being open-minded, when I first got exposed to Dr. Saladino's message and Sean Baker and the other leaders in carnivore, I was like, wow, um, I'm drinking this huge green smoothie every morning, inspired by Dr. Rhonda Patrick's viral YouTube video, where she's dumping in the raw celery and the raw kale and the raw spinach and the raw beets and the raw carrots and blending it up. And then there's more room. So you should dump more stuff in there. And I'm like, wow, this is really super nutrition. And I was drinking that every day and my stomach would bloat out for about four hours afterward. And I was telling my friend about it, who I inspired to also prepare the smoothie. And he goes, yeah, my stomach bloats out too, but you know what? It's so healthy that it's worth it. And that stopped me in my tracks because I said, if something is causing me this transient digestive pain, I'd get little cramps and then they'd go away, but it would be like a big bowling ball for a few hours. And then it would settle and I'd go on with my day. But I'm like, if something that I'm consuming is causing that kind of reaction, there's a problem there. I need to investigate and look at this. And so that was, you know, just transitioning from the super fuel green smoothie now to one where I'm putting frozen liver chunks in. Who knew a few years ago that it'd be on that game? But again, I'm trying to get from level seven, uh, perceived level seven to level nine or whatever's possible. So there's always more progress. And that's kind of what makes it fun and fascinating to listen to the resources and what people are doing and then you know, test it out for yourself. But again, to kind of loop back, if there's processed foods in there where I'm sneaking Oreo cookies after my podcast talking about my liver smoothies, then we got real problems. So I have a very strongly favor, zero tolerance and aggressive intervention to escape from the, the clutches of, you know, the big food marketing and the, the billboards and the commercials and the, the programming that this stuff is okay. It's not okay. I have to agree. And I really appreciate your transparency. And for everyone that's listening, 
almost everyone in the health and wellness space, we do evolve, shift and change throughout our careers. And for me, certainly I spent nine months doing carnivore after being hospitalized. Mm. I credit it for, you know, getting me back to a place of health. For me, those plant-based compounds like kale still actually, I don't tolerate kale at all, but some of those plant-based compounds, it may be a period of time in your life that it, it doesn't work well for you and it could show up as bloating or loose stools or whatever that may manifest as. And that's okay. Like the power of bioindividuality is so important and we need to determine and experiment to find what works best for our bodies. I also appreciate and embrace your desire to change things up. I've started over the course of the summer, I was away with my family on a vacation. And obviously when I'm with my kids and my husband and we're on vacation, I don't have as much control over when I'm eating, what I'm eating. And so I started doing more experimenting. I ate true breakfast some days and then didn't eat till dinner. Some days I fasted longer, some days I fasted less. And I think it's all about finding what works best for you and your body. Unfortunately, there's this one size fits all methodology that evolves out of allopathic medicine. I'll be the first person Mm. to say that you know, every patient gets treated with the same drugs. That's just the way things are. Everyone gets the same starting dose that never worked well for me and my patients, but there's still people that fervently believe in that. And I think it applies to us as well, that we need to trust that we need to be part of the process of experimentation. And just because your mother or your brother or someone that you love has success with keto and fasting doesn't mean that you will necessarily have the same results. And so I think it's really important to be open-minded to the possibility that you may fast, you may not fast, but we are all aligned on eating more nutrient dense foods. Don't be afraid of organ meats. Although I'll fully admit when I interviewed Paul Saladino for the podcast, I think he had just eaten pancreas and spleen. And and I kept saying, okay, well, I think I'm going to start with liver, (laughs) (laughs) harkens back to my childhood because my mom was Italian. But one of the things I want to make sure we touch on, I want to be respectful of your time, but before we kind of loop through, because I could easily talk to you for hours and I have pages and pages of podcast prep because there were so many different, you know, rabbit holes we could have gone down. I want to just close the loop on strength training. We talked a little bit Mm -hmm. about it at the very beginning. You touched on sarcopenia, which is this muscle loss with aging. When we're talking about metabolic flexibility, I think it's very important to at least kind of close this loop about the muscle loss with aging is not a question of if, but when, and why so many people don't even start thinking about this until they find out they're insulin resistant. And then we have to go down that whole discussion of muscles, the organ of longevity, a la Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, but why it's so critically important to do the work so that you don't lose muscle mass as you get older, because there are so many metabolic health benefits to it. Yeah. It's so simple to look at this challenge of living a long, healthy, vibrant life in terms of your your physical fitness and your body composition. Dr. Ted Naiman has made a great uh, communication of this. I think Lane Norton does a good job too, saying if you carry a lot of muscle mass, a functional amount, we're not talking about bodybuilder or some, you know, the women are afraid to lift weights because they're going to get bulky, whatever. It's, you know, healthy functional muscle mass that applies to your frame appropriately. If you just can preserve that throughout life, you are going to, by definition, have excellent metabolic health. There's this concept called organ reserve, and that is the functional capacity of your organs to perform 
beyond baseline level when called upon. And when you start to decline from aging, your organ reserve drops and drops and you become a weak, sensitive, frail person. And so if you have a surgery, you don't come out of it very well because you know the liver, the kidneys, the things that are trying to uh, clear waste products or whatever they're charged with, and you're trying to recover and heal and get out of the hospital, um, you know, the organ reserve is compromised. It's directly tied with your functional muscle mass because to have good organ function, you are using the, the, the muscles are, you know, demanding that the organs work hard. So when you start getting on the bike and pedaling, your lungs are kicking into gear. Your heart, of course, is pumping blood. Uh, the liver is sending nutrients. So the liver's working hard. The kidneys are working hard. It's an all around total body experience to be fit. And so it's the best way to protect uh, sarcopenia. That's kind of the opposite where if we just sit around and look at the clock, we're going to naturally have a decline in muscle mass over the years and decades. And that that's not going to go away. What we're just trying to do is delay and minimize the effects of sarcopenia. Um, and it's pretty simple. I mean, unless we're talking about, you know, um, the, the Olympic athlete who, uh, you know, is wanting to, you know, qualify for the team when they're 57. And I tell people I'm training for the Los Angeles Olympics, 2028, going back to my hometown triumphantly when I'm, what's that going to be 60 something years old. And they're like, really? And I go, no, not really, but I can talk about it and, you know, want to dream, but it's, you know, I'm doing the best I can to stave off that age related decline. And in many ways, I'm a fitter person than I was when I was a pro triathlete competing and uh, going for prizes on the pro circuit around the world, because I was only good for one thing. And I sacrificed so many aspects of fitness just to go a little bit faster in running and pedal the bike a little bit faster. But now I can do sprints, I can do pull-ups, I can lift some weights, I can uh, get into uh, a weekend uh, festivities and um, be able to you know, run around with little kids when I used to coach them playing soccer and basketball and track. Um, I pretty much dominated every practice. And I, I went full bore on these poor guys when my son was age five to 15. And it was so much fun to mix it in there and show them some competitive intensity. And I didn't let up at all. I wanted to win those scrimmages. And I was right in there in the mix, dribbling the basketball and driving to the hoop. And, uh, you know, I, I learned that from another dad. He said, no, no, you never let up. You go full bore. And one day they're going to beat you. And that's fine. But until then, you womp on them and you teach them how to be competitors. And it was so fun to have that stage of my life to be working hard and building my skills and my quickness and all these things that we tend to just reminisce about and then sit and watch others perform on TV. So that's closing the loop on strength training. And again, a little goes a long way. So if you can put yourself under resistance load just for a few minutes here and there, that's a great start. And then ultimately, even when you're very serious about it and you have, you know, you've made a lot of progress, you don't need to go and lift weights for longer than 30 minutes a maximum duration of an hour. And that counts resting and, and chit-chatting and sending a text message and then going back to another set. But you don't want to be in the gym for too long a period of time. Dr. Andrew Huberman talks about this on a recent podcast where anything over an hour and 15 minutes, if your fight or flight mechanisms are called upon for longer than that, that's when you transition into sort of a breakdown experience rather than a building and a thriving experience for the body. And so we have to be very careful tapping in to that wonderful fight or flight mechanism that allows us to perform and you know rise above and do uh, great competitive things, but we have to temper it constantly. 
So hopefully that's uh, sufficient inspiration to go and, you know, use your own body weight at the start. You can see Mark on YouTube, uh, Mark Sisson Primal Essential Movements, and he shows these four quintessential human athletic uh, body weight exercises of push-ups, pull-ups, squats, and planks. Oh, you can't do a pull-up, you say? So you have these, um, we call them progression exercises, where you get under the pull-up bar and you have a little stool and your feet are on the stool. And so you go up on your tippy toes and you provide just enough support so that you can actually go and do six reps of a pull-up, even though you're using your feet, you're cheating, right? But you're still taking the muscles through the range of motion and you're emphasizing the lats, which are used to pull up. And with push-ups, instead of being on the ground, maybe you start with your hands on a chair, right? So it's a chair push-up, whatever you want to call it, much easier. A wall push-up is the easiest. I had my dad knocking those out when he was 96, 97 years old, right till the very end where he just, you know, used to be on the picnic bench and then it was on a wall but putting your muscles through those range of motion and wherever you starting point now, you can, you know, progress and get better and better and preserve that functional muscle mass. Interestingly, the research is the octogenarian age group makes the quickest gains in strength of any age group. So my mom, who just started with OsteoStrong program, you know, you go in there and you you do these very safe full body resistance exercises where they measure your output and it helps you preserve bone density. She can make faster gains than my 24-year-old son, who's a beast in the gym and he's throwing around heavy weights, but he's only improved his squat by 10% in a year. And my mom's chart says that she's doubled her power from her first session four months ago. So that's the promising thing is it's never too late. And even if you're starting from a sorry ass starting point, you're going to make massive, incredible gains and be celebrated for that. That's amazing. Well, thank you for this inspiring and insightful conversation. Please let listeners know how to connect with you, how to reach out and get your books and to listen to your incredible podcast. And you're going to have to get on there. So maybe they'll start by listening to the B-Rad podcast and we can start with the Cynthia show, that comfortable <laughs> space, and then branch out into whatever else this guy is talking about. But yeah, I love doing the podcast and I love connecting with you today. And you can look at bradkearns.com. I have great, uh, fun, exciting content there. A lot of free stuff. The carnivore scores chart you can download for free, print it out, put it on your fridge. And I really appreciate the opportunity here to share. And we're on this journey together. So it's uh, ever more excitement. Absolutely. Thank you again. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. 